Welcome to A Fork in Time, the alternate history podcast. Welcome back to A Fork in Time. This is Don sitting in the host chair today. I'm glad to be sitting in the host chair. We've had a lot of sputs and starts and stops. We've been trying to get back in the role of things, but I'm very happy to see four people that I like on the screen here. Five, I guess, if you count me, because I can see myself. So I have the full crew gathered here today for this episode. Um, working from my left to right, I've got EC Darling Bond, Eric. We're going to start calling him EC, though. We've decided to, just to do that to make it easier since he's adopted yeah. that. So Eric, how are you doing today? Or EC, how are you um, doing today? I'm feeling easy. I'm feeling great. There you go. Uh, see, Ale- <laughs> see Alexis there. Uh, it's good to have Alex on here. I know she's been busy with stuff going on too. Lex, how are you doing this afternoon? Pretty good. Yeah. Life, life's been, life's been busy. Life's been busy. That's that's a fair way to describe it. I've got Mr. Robert Koshu in my in the. If this were the Hollywood Squares, you would almost be towards the middle, except you're the middle bottom for me, Robert. So uh, you're in the Paul Lynn seat. That's dating me a little bit there. <laughs> I like the Paul Lynn seed. Hello, everybody. Hey, Robert. Or, or I guess if you're in the Brady Bunch seed, it's is it Alice that sits in the middle there. So if you, if you know if you know that, you know. It's always Alice. Always Alice. This is what Zoom has done to us. We think Brady Bunch in Hollywood Squares. And there's Mr. Eric Rush. How are you today, Eric? Doing very well, Don. Thank you. Good, good to have everybody back here. So uh, we're going to jump right into it here. We uh, The topic is courtesy today of, of several folks who had suggested this, but mainly Mr. EC Darling Bond. So I'm going to let uh, EC give us the background here. We're going to roll in as we always do with a little bit of the what did, and then we get to the fun part, which is trying to figure out what might have happened. So take it away, good sir. All right. So I want you to put your mind into the 116 years war between England and France, and basically it's the world's worst game of Stratego, where basically all of the noble families are competing, they say, for the throne of France, but no one ever seems to really commit to it. Uh, The Burgundians, a northern French uh, cadet line of the Valois, have allied with the English, and the main branch of the Valois with Charles VII of France leading them. Things are not going well. Most of France has now been occupied by the French and the English. Well, by the Burgundians and the English, that's going to be hard to keep track of. But there is a prophecy, a legend of a maid who will save France for a woman lost France, which is a connection to how Edward claimed that because of his French mother, he had a tie to the French throne. It's all very sexist, but we're going to jump in to 1429 on May 3rd. A young woman named Joan of Arc has come before the French king claiming to have visions, telling her that she must lead French's armies against the Burgundians and against the English. And at Orléans, she will make her stand. She shows up. She wants to immediately charge the embattlements of the Burgundians, but is told she has to wait because they need to get supplies. Now, in our timeline, they waited five days. A battle ended up happening, and Joan of Arc ended up throwing herself into the fray, 
but survived the battle only because Jill DeRay, one of the first historical French serial killers and BFFs with Joan of Arc, was able to show up with the armaments and supplies they needed. You know, the rest of the story, they continue on for a year. She wins nine out of 13 battles, I want to say, against the French, or against the Burgundian and English forces, and is eventually burned at the stake by the Burgundians and the English for heresy. She becomes saint. Mark Twain writes a book that he thinks is good about her. You know, whole story. But what if she got to lead the battle a day earlier, on May 3rd? She is immediately killed. And now we're going to figure out what happens when the greatest threat to the uh, Burgundian-English alliance is just automatically gone. In the words of, I believe it's better off dead, you know, I think you just need a little bit of success and you'll find that it suits you. Now with Joan of Arc gone, that line doesn't exist because the French love interest in that movie no longer speaks French, she speaks English. And we're going to find out why. Uh, actually, it's interesting you referenced that movie, uh, EC, as uh, my favorite line from that is $2, but that's neither here nor there. $2. You, <laughs> owe, <laughs> you owe me $2. All right. <laughs> yeah, young John Cusack. Uh, there you go. All right. So... We all know that what happened in the real timeline, as was quickly summarized there, is that Joan's arrival uh, changes the course of this longstanding battle and and swings it back to where um, to to French success when things were not looking well for the French. So I guess the first place that I want to go and throw out to the panel is the assumption being that if they go a day early improperly supplied all the reasons that are there again failure is what's going to to, to take place and that results in her death so if the french if the french don't win here is is it over for the french eventually is there is there english and 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 allied french forces that are in control i guess what's the big picture thoughts just going around really quick my thought is yes because at this point they've really been just kind of the french have been just kind of holding out for some kind of miracle to happen the Burgundians and the English do not have as strong as an alliance as they appear from the outside to have. But to the French, especially to Philip, who, or is it Philip or who is the Charles VII? To Charles VII, who we call the victorious because he gets crowned King of England after the battle because Joan of Arc tells him that's what the angels want for him it adds the sense of legitimacy. But if this great hope who she was prophesized and that they put a lot of faith into just dies automatically. And she had a number of close calls during the Battle of Orleans where oh, it's she was saved personally by Jill Duray no less than four separate occasions. It, it becomes kind of, at, at worst, uh, or at best, an embarrassment of like, hey, do you remember that time Charles got that weird witch to lead a battle <laughs> on that encampment? To worst of, well, Charles is a heretic. He just believed this heretic of uh, leading a battle. That's weird. Any thoughts? Jill DeRay, richest man in Europe, and also later to be convicted of serial killing? 
Well, not necessarily about that, but, um, yeah. you know, I, I, I definitely think that if, if, uh, if there was any number of ways that she could have died at the battle of early on, and, and in, in many ways, I think it, it was more likely than not that she would have been, you know, I almost, I almost feel like the, the actual history is, is less plausible than what could have happened is, you know, what the, the most likely set of scenarios are honestly that she died anonymous you know, in, in, at the battle of Orleans and you have a fairly rudderless French force you know, that, that really didn't have, that had the Dauphin and, and, and was against, and, and I agree with you, you see that you, you had the, you had the Burgundians and the English and they had a, um, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, um, sort of alliance. Um, I, I think they could have probably, I, I, I think at best they could have carved up the Turkey had they, you know, defeated France, but that's probably about it. There might've been some tension. I could have easily seen, uh, you know, the English being content with, uh, with Brittany, Normandy and Gascony and, and, the, and the Burgundians uh, taking the rest of what we now consider sort of Northeastern France, but it definitely wasn't a, you know, it, it wasn't a true alliance. Uh, but I think the the victory at Orleans kind of opened up the 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 door for you know the the further Loire campaigns you know which were which opened the door for further campaigns, which eventually ended up in you know in, in with the with the crowning of of Charles the Seventh, um, which we usually call the the Dauphin, which I it, to me is a very uh, a very interesting name for a uh, for crown prince. But uh, that's that's my my uh, Anglophone ears. Well, that's just because, you know, the English love whales and the French love dolphins, Eric. There there you go. I mean, that's, I guess I, I like whales and dolphins. And so I guess that's that, that's a thing. Uh, two things. One, um, I agree with, with both, both Eric's. Um, the alliance between the English and the Burgundians is not really an alliance. It's more of a toleration. Um, it is very much that enemy of my enemy is my friend thing where it's like, we're just going to tolerate you because we like you marginally more than the people that we're fighting. Um, and I think that the reason Joan of Arc is still talked about today is because of the outcome of the battle. If it goes differently, it's, yeah, we're, we're going to sweep that under the rug and not talk about that, that time that we accidentally put all our hopes on a uh, heretic. Um, yeah, I, I don't, I don't think she becomes the the figure that we know today. She would still be a part of it, but she doesn't become the figurehead and the, um, and the saint if, if this goes differently. To, to me, the thing that jumps out there, I'll readily admit this is, this is one of those parts of, um, French English history that I sort of have difficulty keeping track of and there's too many henry's there's like 39 henry's i think just in france alone you know during this the period of time for the next couple of years and and all the stuff there and, it, and again it's a long war to ec's point you know we call it the hundred years war we're shortchanging it by 16 years when we do that you know it, it, it was it was a long time it was multi-generational but to me it always just tells you how desperate things were for the french that they're willing to let this this untrained girl you know teenager have, have, yeah, a teenager. 
have any have any say at all on what they're going to do. That sort of gives you an idea of just how desperate the situation is that, you know, it's come to this and, okay, maybe she is getting visions from God. And, you know, at this point, what, you know, almost is like, a, yeah, we need to make sure we're properly supplied, but hey, you know, what have we got to lose? You know, kind of deal, which gives yeah. to me, that's just the whole indication of just how desperate the situation was. So the, the first thought I have is if this occurs in this timeline, Joan of Arc does not exist in our history. Right. At all. Like none. Like there is no mention of her at all. The English and the Burgundies definitely are victorious because Joan becomes a symbol of France at this point. And it, she, she becomes the symbol that moves everything forward. And to this day, the French revere, hold her in high esteem as the one who took on the bad English and did something with them. And mm-hmm. I, I think the, the downstream effect is even bigger than the immediate effect mm-hmm. with this. Agreed. I, I, I guess agree. that was I guess that was gonna be my question is, you know, it's I'm trying to imagine yeah. You know, Eric sort of divvied up how it might be divvied up in terms of, you know, how the settlement would go down. Um, it, in this alternate timeline, if we said France today, would there be anything that we would even think of as being modern France or what would, what would France be like? Now, a lot of stuff happens obviously between then and now, obviously there's tons that goes on, but I mean, what is the, what, what is the, I was, I was going to say, uh, for me, the interesting thing is, you know, there's the immediate outcome here that would be different. We just talked about that. Maybe we can talk about that more. But what is the long term here? And I think the downstream is really interesting because, you know, like it or not, France is a big landmass part of Europe, even when they're not powerful, just because they're it's larger. And so you, you pull France out and create a vacuum. What do you have? Yeah, I. Oh, go ahead, Eric. You know, I, I think that. um you know, I think eventually Gascony goes back to what we consider France. I think cult- culturally, I think it goes, it eventually goes back one way or the other. You know, when, when we kind of get out of the medieval era into a more sort of early modern nation state era, um, that's not hard for me to envision, you know, but, but um, similarly, I could easily see a um, kind of Normandy in, in Breton either being part of a, a kind of a greater, a greater British, British empire um, almost a kind of a not quite the Angevin Empire, but not unlike the Angevin Empire, um, but sort of st- kind of maintaining some of that cultural similarity to, to to Britain, whether politically or just culturally. And you know, we may see a, a, a persistence of a of a Burgundian state, uh, if not to the modern era, that at least a, a little bit longer, um, at least in sort of the what would we call the sort of the the Franche Comte, the Alsace Lorraine Grand Est, you know, those those sort of places that we would think of as being more Burgundian. That's not hard to see, at least for a while. I don't know how that ends up necessarily. Uh, and, I, and I think especially as, you know, if we if we kind of take this 400 years into the future, when we look for kind of the Prussian unification of, of what we what we eventually called the German state, you know, would they would they look to, you know, a, a French state for for security? Or would they feel, you know, comfortable with, uh, you know, being in their in their own nation statehood, as did uh, you know Belgium and the Netherlands. I don't think we know that. But so, anyway. Eric, are you thinking? Because I'm, I'm, I pulled up a map just because I was totally curious. Yeah. So, are you thinking France becomes three pieces? So, the northern part of France 
Normandy, Port de Calais, those areas. Well, Calais doesn't end up there, but Normandy um, kind of end up in England. But then the eastern north part, which is like Flanders, down into the Duchy of Burgundy, that yep. that all becomes Burgundy. Exactly. And then France is that little southern part. And I guess the only question I have is, does the Bordeaux region stay with France or does it stay with England? And then at some point, do you end up having Bordeaux stays with, stays with France? You think Bordeaux stays with France? And then, so that's interesting because now you've got an expanded. Now you have an England with a foothold on the continent, and for an extended period of time, and an ally in that Burgundy kingdom at mm-hmm. the same time. So that becomes even more intriguing as you come out of the Hundred Years' War. Well, and and let's assume that everything everything stays the same as far as future succession, and you all and and you also have a Hanoverian dynasty um, in in the in in Great Britain, you know, some hundred some several hundred years in the future. Um, which I mean, my geography as an American is a little distorted, but you know, when I think of Burgundy and Hanover, they you know to me that sounds like a, a kind of a nothing commute. Yeah. The, the other thing that immediately jumped into my mind thinking about the timeline here, we're in 1429. Mm-hmm. So we're less than a hundred years short of of the Reformation. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Reformation being popping up at lots of places, and it certainly exists before this with with Huss and some of the other, you know, other other things that were going on that were there before Luther. <laughs> but you know, the, the Reformation at its core is very German. <laughs> Luther and then and then and then very Swiss, and um, of course you know there's the the nature of the Switzerland being you know um, it, its connections to France linguistically and otherwise. But you know just, I'm I'm, tr- I'm trying to think through in my head, and I don't know the answer to this question. Uh, in fact, I, I know that it was in, it was an EC's notes. You know, is, is the Hussite Reformation what really becomes the Reformation as we know it because something else gets changed, or if there still is a Reformation. Without a without France playing the role that it was and being divided for much of its history when it came to what was going on with Protestants and Catholics as a counterbalance to Spain, all the things that are going on, uh, because two things are about to happen in the next century. Uh, the age of exploration is really going to go to the next level with with uh, with the New World, and then and then the Reformation coming along, and you know how are those the same or how are those different with the with Europe divided up? And what we what we used to think of as France being three different kingdoms and playing together maybe differently. Mm-hmm. So EC oh. gave us some great notes about councilorism, which is basically does the Pope control or does an ecumenical council control the church at this point? So church history is actually one of my bigger pieces. And yeah, absolutely. This massively affects particularly what we refer to as the Council of Florence, which is where the councilorism was actually thrown away in. And so that actually becomes, now we've got that. So in essence, there's not a Pope for Luther to rail against. I think he's going to rail against the Catholic Church still, Don. But I do think ecumenical councils are going to become much more prevalent throughout time. So after the Nicene Council, now you've got the Council of Florence, you know, and those, I think those become much more prominent over time. And so I think Rome loses some of its power in the in the midst of this as well. 
Uh, and the other thing I was just going here, and Alexis, I think, is probably more of our in-house expert on this than almost anyone. Uh, I started thinking about, you know, we're talking about the Wars of the Roses that are also, you know, I guess still ahead or in the middle of it or we're still ahead to some degree uh, in terms of figuring out where that's going to be. And so much of that was often the influence that France was trying to to place on who was going to be seated on the English throne. Well, yeah. you know, does that, does that play out or work the same way? Well, um, when I was reading through uh, EC's notes, a name stuck out immediately when you think uh, War of the Roses, that would be Jaquetta of Luxembourg. Because in the real timeline, she's the mother of this little person called Elizabeth uh, Woodville, the future wife of Edward IV. So does this affect the 100 years war? 100% yes, it affects the 100 years war. Yeah, and then, and then ultimately, you know, how does that play out with, you know, I, I guess, you know, one, one of the things we've talked about a number of times before, because we tend to, you know, we, we focused around this this area, this era of history a lot, is... Um, there was there was the disruption going on inside of England because of the War of the Roses, which kept it from being as organized as an outward power as you might have thought it would have been. You know, when it becomes a Protestant nation, it becomes a Protestant nation. Yes, to some degree because of theology, but mostly because of politics and 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 and, and genders, you know, and 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 heirs. And you know, so if 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 you have a different England, England that is actually a, a, a either a colonial. Uh, not colonial, continental power, or at least a continental presence, even if it's just, you know, through a client state type of arrangement, which is what it may have ultimately become by this point. You know, the dynamics of what we know that were the dynamics between France and Spain and England and 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 the Germany in the sense of the Protestant Reformation, all of that gets tipped around a little bit. I don't know where it lands, but it gets tipped around a good bit. Well, what I essentially was learning doing the research for this is that France and England are almost entirely in the same boat politically, just maybe past each other by 15 years apiece, to where they are both monarchies that are not explicitly nationalized yet. Like we are before the age of lowercase and nationalism, to where everybody has a sense of like, oh yeah, we belong to this nation state, whereas we're in this period of like, oh no, this is just this guy's property. It's kind of like if you went to war with a different HOA over like property rights of like, well, I own that apartment block over there. And it's like, you don't own that apartment block, we own it. It's, it's a step up from feudalism. It's a step up of, of feudalism. And we're also dealing with both monarchies that are in periods of regency for a lot of the war. Like for the English right now, at the time of Joan of Arc, we have Henry VI, who is a wee child, his uncles, John of Bedford and Humphrey of Gloucester, and his great uncle, who is a cardinal, but his name is escaping me, who was put in charge of the Hussite War and then promptly lost his division, fun family, are essentially in charge of running the nation and running the war effort. And they are very committed to the idea of Henry V's dream of an English France. That is what they are all about. Humphrey especially is very well known and tried to kind of take over the, the Regency Council, but things just don't work out, especially when his second wife gets accused of necromancy weird time and then henry the sixth grows up 
and he's kind of another Richard II to where he's not a warlike prince, which is anathema to the whole scheme of the monarchy, which is just like, yeah, dude, our whole identity is based on war. That's why we haven't finished this war. This is a game. This is the world's best game because we are so bored all the time. <laughs> which is just a fun thing I always think about is just how much like weird things people got into. You kind of saw it during the pandemic of like, I've just become maniacally about baking bread. I've started war with France. Everybody has their coping mechanism. But we also have this whole conflict with the between the branches of the Valois because a couple of decades beforehand, guy burns a man at a costume party, then that man gets assassinated by his cousin, uh, I think John the Bold of the Burgundy because, you know, he kind of drove the king's insanity worse. That being the king who thought he was made of glass. I can't remember his name. I'm going to go with Charles. It's uh, one of the Charles. That would have been yes. Charles the Charles the sixth, right? Yeah. yeah. Alexis. Oh I'm yeah. Pretty sure, yeah. Oh, he's got some diagnoses <laughs> going on. Let me tell you. <laughs> yeah, because Charles the, the sixth thing is like set a man on fire at a costume party, <laughs> like. Also, they're pretty inbred, so not already a great gene pool. But Charles VI, when he has to have a regency because of his struggles with his mental illness, you know, his brother starts having an affair with the queen. His cousin kills his brother <laughs> for doing that in public. Like you do. Yeah, and then that starts off a civil war, and the Hundred Years' War. So, you know, Regency Council's not great for this time period. Yeah, I, I can. I remember, I can't remember, maybe in Garrett Magley's The Armada, but it could have been something else. I remember reading reading a history book once, and it's like there were two, two or three chapters just identifying all the Henrys in France, making sure you understood all, who all the Henrys were. And there were other, you know, contestants to the throne as well. But ju just getting all your Henrys straight, you know, was three chapters worth of, of exposition before you could even get into the history. And so, you know, I spent a half hour going through an alternative family line saying, what if Humphrey took over? And then eventually it leads into the Yorks. Do you know how many Henrys I had to count? <laughs> John had yeah, long his real life family. 18. It's, 18. It's a, it's a lot of Henrys. And, and even and going back a little bit, just to pick on something that Eric said, you know, this, again, this transitioning from medieval into, you know, sort of the modern nation state and what's there. We are before, we're, we're before that. It's the formation this is starting to rise. But, you know, we, we've talked here, we've used the word France multiple times here and there was an understanding of who the French were, I guess, linguistically and culturally to a degree, but not like, you know, not like the way you, we use France today when we're talking about 21st century France in terms of it being a modern nation state. These were, these were regions, these were areas that had been at various times independent or aligned with each other and, you know, changed over time very much as the the elements inside of the United Kingdom have, cha yeah, have changed over times in terms of whether they're, they're the same place or not. And I think that's, you know, to me, that's what makes it interesting is here's this, you know, here, here's Joan, who we started off with here, who arrives on the scene. And again, things are so desperate. It's like, well, maybe she is seeing visions from God. You know, we'll take a chance on this because that'll work as well as anything else. So where does this ultimately lead? No, no Joan of Arc. We said, you know, basically 
the only people that would know would probably be three or four obscure historians who may have done some research on what happened before the the, the loss at the Battle of, of Orleans. You know, again, she would be a footnote of history at best. Um, you know, one of the things I always think about here is okay, if it wouldn't, if it wasn't her, maybe it's somebody else, right? Is there is there the possibility that somebody else similar to that steps up just because you know that's what tends to happen? Yeah, I mean, it's always possible, but it, it doesn't seem very plausible. And I, and I think more than anything, you know, Joan was a, you know, it was a, was a tonic, was a salve for the morale of the French, of the French troops. I, I you know, I, I, I uh, I'm, I'm going to pull a, a Bible quote here. I'm going to pull, you know, Romans 831, you know, if, if God be for us, who can be against us? <laughs> And, um, and I think that's the, the, you know, that feels very much the way that the, the, that the French forces reacted to, to, to Joan, you know, believing whether it's true or not, whether this is actually, you know, actually what happened or not, that, that, you know, that she was, you know, picked by God to be, you know, to, to be a, a, a rep, his representative to the French forces. So if that fails, you know, for whatever reason, then I, then I think you, you don't have that morale boost. And, and I think you, you have a lack of direction, you know, to, to what we would consider to be the French forces. And so I don't think you have a crowning of the Dauphin, at least not in the, not in the foreseeable future. And so I, I easily see the, you know, kind of the vision. And I think this is really more Henry V's vision, you know, because again, you know Henry the the sixth is I don't even know how how old he is at this point. What is he like thirteen by this point or something like that? Um, I think he's ten. Ten, yeah, yeah. There you yeah. go. So he's he's a kid, you know. So you know he's he's um, he's probably not thinking of his you know grand strategy for northwestern Europe quite quite yet. Um, but so but his father was you know before uh, and so you know we have sort of Henry the fifth's vision for a you know a. a a British empire or Angevin empire or English empire. I don't know, whatever you want to call it where, you know, France, I think has very much the same status as, you know, what we would consider Scotland, Wales, you know, has in our timeline that, you know, they have, they, they have their own culture. Certainly they have their own language that, you know, that, that is, has undergone a resurgence. But at the end of the day, they have internalized a lot of English culture and that what they speak is English. Uh, and so, you know, I think that's and then you have again, we don't know what exactly happens to, you know, to, to Burgundy. Maybe they persist to this day and you have a, you know, a Republic of Burgundy. Um, that's an that that's an interesting you know diversion that we could explore at a different point. Um, that would be a Republic of Burgundy would be a nice little, you know, kind of wealthy republic, almost like a, a very large Luxembourg in many ways, potentially. Um, All that wine money. And yeah, the, yeah, um, you know, wine and finance. You, you could, you, I, I could, I feel like I could do a lot with Burgundy. <laughs> I feel like Burgundy would call itself France and everybody else would call it Burgundy. <laughs> It's like, uh, that's interesting. Know, well, or or do they call themselves France and 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 what we would consider sort of the rump France? Would they call themselves something else? Because it's a lot of you know, you know, it, it's a lot of you know Provence. It's a lot of Aquitaine. You know, it's a lot of other regions that are still things that we we recognize today as France. But you know, knowing that you know that you know much like like Germany, you know, we you know what we consider to be a cohesive culture is really not so much. I mean, maybe to, you know, externally to our American eyes and ears, it, it feels that way. 
but in many cases, these are very disparate cultures. And, you know, and, and, and so what we might end up with is a, is a, a, a two French cultures that are politically different and, you know, are culturally somewhat different. And so, you know, anybody who's been to Austria, um, you know, in the, will will know that even though, yes, it is a German culture, but it's different. And I love Austria, by the way, you know, Salzburg, one of my favorite cities on earth. Um, but it's not, Salzburg is not Munich. It's not Berlin by a long shot. You know, so these are very different. One of the things you had posed, uh, I appreciate that. Eric. One of the things you had posed DC in the timeline was, you know, sort of leading into the things that would eventually become what I was thinking along the lines of the Reformation. But then even, you know, the Reconquista is not that far ahead. Again, the age of discovery, you know, 1492. Uh, it's easy for me to think of 1492 as Columbus sailing, but the other big event of that year was, you know, the final, the end of the Reconquista, you know, the the, the Moors are, are removed from Spain. And, yeah, and and one of the things that occurred to me, you know, as I was thinking here through, you know, you talk about all the Henrys there, you, Henry the Sixth, Henry the Seventh, Henry the Eighth, you know, the decisions by uh, the the decision for uh, the decision for uh, Henry, well, originally for for Arthur, the, for originally for Arthur uh, to marry Catherine. Uh, you know, and then later becomes Henry marrying Catherine, and the, you know the, the the set of dominoes. We all know what that goes down, and again, we you know we we visited there often on the podcast for the reasons that we have. Is that's a very different scenario if you have a different France, you have different balance of power, you maybe have a different what's going on with with Spain, where Spain's still dealing with its internal things versus you know the influence that it's trying to have on the rest of the you know the rest of the continent. To me, to me, there's there's just so many moving pieces. That's what I find very difficult about trying to go down the historical what if here because you have a hard time figuring out in the equation what to turn into a constant to deal with the variables. There's just variables all over the place. Yeah. Robert, were you, were you about to say something? Yeah, you're, I was going to say your butterfly effect at this point is multiple butterflies spinning yeah. off in multiple directions. And and how many of them are create you know, or how many of them are canceling each other's waves out versus you know, you know, amplifying somebody else's and all of that. I think that's where it gets really, you know, so often when we go down a historical alternate path, you know, we sort of find one predominant path and we go down it, and there's not as many influences that we think about. But here, there's just there's so many variables. I mean, it's just, you know, every, this maybe changes nothing, or maybe it changes everything, I guess, is the way that I was thinking about it in my head, you know, in terms of the long term of what's happening there. It's, you know, if you, if again, we're not even sure what to call these areas of France, whether they would call themselves France, you know, is, uh, is, is an interesting part of part of the equation of what's going on there. What else big did we miss? Well, Zhang Ke does his final voyage for the Ming Dynasty before they <laughs> impose a policy of isolation that will last until Britain starts selling them opium illegally. Yeah. Well, I've often speculated about this. You know, I'm thinking there about you know the, the Chinese maybe doing more to come and you know and be more of a presence in in the New World, if you will. But I've often wondered about. If you have, we've talked about this before on a couple of other episodes, if you have a different England who is able to be more of an exploration power versus, you know, dealing with what they're dealing with for survival, you know, what what if it's not Spain that is the predominant influence in most of the new world? What if it is in England Uh, or maybe it's the Portuguese or maybe it's the Dutch, you know, Dutch? 
which, you know, I, I don't know who it is, but, you know, so much of the way that we think of how history goes down with how history goes down there for several hundreds of years is the wealth that was brought in by the Spanish um, riches coming in from the new world. What if it's not them? You know, what if it's, what if it's a more unified England? Who's not, who's not, and there's not as much of the, the, the reformation as we know it. That's something that they're having to do there where, you know, this is a, this is an Island nation. They were more geared towards maritime than, you know, they just didn't have the ability to do that as much because of what they were dealing with internally, politically, and externally, politically. Well, and then let, let's let's peek this just a little bit. Does England stay north if they go that exploration route? Or do they follow Spain's route and go south? Because I think that's the, you know, and I'm thinking just because of navigational reasons, they end up staying north. And so do you have not 13 colonies right along the seaboard, but maybe 15 to 20 colonies that go to the other side of the Mississippi River and go down to Florida at that point as well? I think they might have a little freer hand a bit south, but, you know, where do they where do they sail from? So, let, let you know, let's assume that they have the, you know, a at least a part of the Atlantic coast of France. Mm-hmm. It's available to them and they're not just sailing from the English Channel, right? So yeah, they, you know, the English Channel led the led them to Virginia in North Carolina initially. Um, but it but led them led them to that part of the country. And so if they're a little bit to the south, is that really does that really change a lot? I don't know. For sure they not. get Florida and Cuba in my mind. Okay, yeah. I'll give you I'll give you Florida at the very least, probably Cuba too. <clears throat> You know, so at least they get a little bit more of a foothold, a little south, and a little bit in the Caribbean. But I don't know that it changes the distribution all that much. You know, so I think you're, you know, I think you're Cuba. I think you know Cuba, Bahamas, and then pretty much the entire Eastern Seaboard. And and I hate to destroy the food people among us forever, but New Orleans does not exist as New Orleans as we know it because the French never get it as Louisiana in this scenario in my mind. Yeah, that's right. No, no, no Louisiana, no Quebec. Ah, also Joan of Arc goes down as Joan Dark in a Shakespeare play. That's what I've decided. I mean, maybe Joan the Dark. I think you just named the episode, Eric. <laughs> Joan <Yeah>. Dark. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, d- does history totally forget her? Like, I think so. I, I think it, like Don said, at best she's a footnote because. It, She's the girl that showed up that managed to convince Charles to send supplies that did not help any. Yeah, I just I think we would I think historians would know of her, you know, because she comes and, you know, the visions and offers to lead and all the other stuff that's there. But, you know, pretty much you say, well, the visions visions must not have been true. She's dead. (laughs) You know, it's you know, you know, you know, problem solved or 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 situation. You know, there's success, and the success, as Eric sort of well pointed out, you know, leads to you know the confidence thing that happens there. You know, it's a psychological impact. Maybe it is, you know, a, a religious impact for those that believe. And uh, but you know, if she if she's a one day wonder. <laughs> Essentially, you know, historians will know of her because the events would have happened and they were recorded, but she's not a she's not a figure. And, you know, and, and then, you know, even even once she's captured by the English and 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 tried and 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 burned as a heretic, then she becomes a martyr. 
So, well, you know, you know, so, 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 so her influence is true both when she's living and when she's dead. Well, and one thing I found out when I was studying is that Charles VII had kind of soured on Joan of Arc because she kept getting in the way of him trying to do a truce with the Burgundian, with the Burgundian forces. Yeah, it was kind of like, shut up, little peasant girl, and let me be the, let me be the ruler. He's like, uh, there's only one king, and it's me. This, it's it's like a children of the corn situation between Malachi and that other dude that I can't remember his name of. But she also starts writing nobles letters saying, if I wasn't too busy killing the English, I'd be coming after you for your heresies against the church. And Charles is just like, please stop antagonizing my allies. Yeah, I, I, I do. Re- I do remember re- reading things along the lines of, you know, while she's valuable in the role that she takes on as a martyr, and obviously what she did there. Um, at some point, they're they're happier to have her gone than to have her around because she's more she's more trouble than she's worth in that respect. She's good as a dead martyr. She's useless as a live peasant with visions. It is really what it, because because then she becomes a symbol of right. France. And, and you can take that symbol and mold it to a degree how you mm-hmm. want to uh, when you're still in power. And you know, that's always been the case for a lot of circumstances. So, you know, it's um, I find her to be a fascinating because even so I've now, you know, I've seen, well, I guess various Hollywood representations. The one that's in my mind, the messenger is the one that I have in my head. The, uh, I can't pronounce her last name, but the first actress's first name is Mila. I remember that. But um you know, there, there's been a number of portrayals over over the years, and you see even how the how Hollywood portrays her differently because she's she's this not enigmatic character in history. You know, who she was, what she really was, what she might have been, all of that is really colored on which side you were on and how you thought about it and how you thought it through. But there's no doubt that I, I think that whether I don't know where we got anywhere with the alternate history so much to accept that she was a turning point in real history. We know that if we take her out, the number of different things we've talked about here that could have been different are all possible to Eric's original point. Normally we talk about it when we talk about our forks, finding a plausible one. This is that interesting scenario where the reality seems less plausible than almost everything else we would mention or talk about. It's this rare thing where the, where the, the thing that you wouldn't put the odds on is actually what happened. <laughs> And now you're trying to figure out which of the other things which seems more probable, you know, could have happened, uh, which is harder to do because they all seem so probable. Yep, we were prevented the glorious uh, rise of parliamentary democracy across the continent. It almost seems fitting with Boris Johnson resigning from parliament yesterday. That is Joan of Arc's greatest legacy. I don't know. <laughs> That's a terrible joke. I'm so sorry. <laughs> well, yeah, and ultimately they do become, you know, what I what I think of the French monarchy, I immediately go to, you know, the Sun King, I go to Louis the Fourteenth, and then ultimately go to Louis the Sixteenth in terms of, you know, the way I think of French monarchy at two different stages there, you know, sort of at its height and then it, right before its demise. And uh those are those are very different than the France that we're talking about here when Joan is, you know, rescuing them and, and bringing bringing them to prominence. It's uh it's quite a little rise they have after after uh, after 1429. Uh, so John Christophe uh, Bonaparte is the head of Italy's Italian family in this timeline. <laughs> no Bonapartes. Yeah. Good stuff.
All right. I'm going to go around here real quick. Did we miss anything big that anybody just was think was was thinking about they had to get out? No. Okay. Well, I do appreciate uh, everybody here. Thank you, EC. Thank you, Eric. Thank you, Robert. Thank you, Lex. Uh, we are we're doing better. We're coordinating with each other to get to record on a regular basis, so you'll see us more frequently. Uh, we owe you guys that are Fork and Time listeners that also happen to be a room where it happened listeners. We definitely owe you a room where it happened. I know we have some ideas about where we're going to go there. Uh, I enjoyed last last week's episode. Again, it's one of those things I've said all along. I'll just say it again because it's been a while. Uh, I didn't have to do anything for that for that episode last week except listen to those guys who pulled the episode together and that was a fun place to be and uh dylan and ec and the others that were part of that robert were part of that i appreciate you guys doing that so we want to thank our listeners for being patient stick with us uh we're, we're worth sticking with uh we got we got so many topics in the queue it's unbelievable it's just finding the time to get them done so we just have to be better about not letting our real lives get in the way the thing that we wish we were all just multi-billionaires so we could do this all the time and not have to really work for a living but i haven't quite made it there yet um I was um, talking to somebody yesterday. Uh, we, uh, I was thinking of the episode with uh, that Chris and I guess Eric, you did too, the, which was the um, uh, the SpaceX episode, the Elon Musk episode. I was talking about using Chris's analogy of Elon really is a uh, he's a Bond villain with the spaceships and everything, you know, kind of thing. And uh, I said, "Where'd you get that from?" Ah, I said, "I stole that from one of the guys that's on our podcast team." But uh, so I'll give Chris credit for that uh, since he's not able to join us here today. Anybody have any closing thoughts? Before I close this out for good. All right. Alex, I'm gonna throw to each other. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's our I think I think that's our fifth 1980s movie movie reference. We've gotten better off dead in. Uh, off podcast, we got in a certain Spielberg film that shall remain nameless. Uh, we've gotten in, uh, we've gotten in a couple of other things here. So uh, good stuff. Yeah, be, be excellent to each other. So Lex, since you're on the since you're on today's recording, I'm going to throw it to you with our traditional close. Any suggestion for what our listeners ought to do if they encounter a fork in time? Take it. Thanks for listening to a fork in time, the alternate history podcast. Learn more and provide feedback by visiting our website at www.aforkintimepodcast.com. Connect to us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash aforkintime or follow us on Twitter at A-F-I-T podcast. If you want to support the show financially, visit our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash aforkintime. We hope you will join us next time. <laughs>